Morning. How are we? Doing good? Feeling good? Hmm. All right, everybody stand up. Stand up. I'm not joking. Stand up. Here we go. Everybody stand up. Let's get a little stretch in. Get a little stretch. Move the arms. Lift them high. Like maybe, maybe do some quad stretching here. All right. How are we? Good. All right, grab a seat. Here we go. Here we go. And the nine o'clock was energetic. Feeling good about the nine. Now I'm feeling good about y'all. Here we go. Um, we're going to pass the offering, so uh, be ready for that as it comes, over, uh, as it comes around. My name's Garland, and uh, uh, I heard recently um, a pastor that I admire and respect. His name's Tim Keller, and uh, uh, he said uh, a statement that I've been, I've been contemplating. Here's what he said. He said uh, that Americans are the most pain-intolerant uh, people group or people that the world has ever known. That when it comes to uh, dealing with just the, the, the difficulties of life, the suffering, the pain that comes in life, our pain threshold as Americans is really small. Like it's really, really small. And I got to, I've been thinking about, that, about this statement. Is he, is he right? And I've been thinking about just, if you think about the history of humanity, like this thing called the human experiment here on this planet, and the, the millions of, of humans that have come over the thousands of years of humanity, um, you think about most of their lives, like most of their lives were really pretty bleak, if you think about it. Like just desperately trying to survive, given the scarcity of resources, uh, the lack of things. They're just hoping to survive starvation, survive the winter. Like if we don't, if we don't hunt enough or we don't grow enough, then we starve. They're trying to survive invasion from neighboring tribes or neighboring states or nations, whatever it may be. They're trying to just stave off like, like illness and death, and their mortality rate was much lower than it is now. And if you think about what that would do to you as a person, your life is a, is a struggle, it's painful, then it, it kind of toughens the skin, it, it quickens your senses to the reality of what life is. Now, if you contrast that with the, the American way of, of life, and, and I'm not, I'm, I know I'm overgeneralizing here, but one of the things that we sort of aspire to, and we have the luxury of aspiring to it in this country, is, is we want to live a life of maximizing you know, pleasure and comfort and our happiness now. We want to try to push back as much of the suffering and pain as we possibly can to either a later date or, if we can, to not at all. And we have the luxury to be able to do that as Americans. And the reality about this letter that we're studying, this letter written to this this ancient audience, probably in ancient Rome, they're just hoping to make it. I mean, as they're trying to follow Jesus, they're finding that it's butting up against uh, persecution and opposition and cultural pressure and ostracism from their family and friends as people are beginning to reject them and despise them. And as they're asking the question, is, they're asking this question, is following Jesus really worth it? through all the difficulties and pains of life. Well, this is costing me something to follow Jesus, and is this really worth it after all? And this letter was written to encourage and exhort that group of people, keep going, keep going, it's worth it. And we're gonna see that exhortation and that encouragement beautifully demonstrated in our passage this morning as we get to look at Hebrews chapter 12, one and two. Last time I got all the chapter nine, animal sacrifices. Today, two verses. Yes. Hebrews 12, one and two. 
And I'm just gonna call this the race of life, this race called life that you and I find ourselves in. Here's our three points. By the way, I say it every time. Three points, it's not to be cute. Three points are for this reason. So you can take notes. When the Bible's being taught, take notes so that you can, A, remember it. Because guess what? You're gonna forget most of what's said on this stage or in your community group or wherever you may be. You're just gonna forget it. And B, so then you can reteach it to other people in discipleship, in small group, and so you can reteach yourself uh, when you're gonna need it one day. And so the race of life, here's your three points. So write these down, note on your phone, whatever you got. In this race, you need to write expectations, write preparation, and you have to have the right prize. Write expectations, write preparation, and write prize. You have your Bibles, phone, whatever you got, open them up with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse one and two. While you're turning there, um, I just want you to consider for a moment that you're going about your job or your hobby, your favorite hobby, or whatever it is you do kind of on a weekly basis, and the best in the world shows up while you're doing that job or that hobby. Let's say you're at the gym and you're playing two-on-two and LeBron James walks in. I mean, the best in the world, arguably, the best in the world. And he walks in and you're playing two-on-two with some of your buddies. That game's gonna get a lot more intense really quickly because LeBron just walked in. Like, you're gonna, you're gonna think a little bit sharper and you're gonna try to play a little bit harder because he's the best in the world at FAC or at Wilson Park as we're playing two-on-two. Like, imagine you're cooking dinner and Gordon Ramsay walks in. Now, you're gonna be worried about him dropping some F-bombs on you for sure, but you're gonna cut those carrots just a little bit more precisely. He's got three Michelin stars in a restaurant in London. He's one of the best in the world, it's gonna, it's gonna quicken your senses a little bit because there's Gordon Ramsay. Or you're renovating your house and you're at Target and you're thinking, man, how are we gonna do this house renovation? What kind of curtains should we get? And right behind you walks Joanna Gaines and she's listening. Mm-hmm-hmm. Like you're, gonna, you're gonna think a little bit differently. You're gonna try to make the most exact decision. You're gonna be thinking about the colors better because after all, she designed the stuff that you're looking at. I can remember for me, um, when I was just starting out on staff, I was like early 20s, and Fellowship does this thing where our staff gets together for staff chapel, uh, especially up in Rogers. Everybody's there. And the first time I was uh, asked, which I don't know why they did this, asked to, to lead staff chapel. Um, I don't normally get nervous uh, doing like this. I like doing this. But I was nervous that day. And the reason I was nervous was uh, out in the, in the room, these are like, my, the people that were my youth pastors and my kind of heroes growing up, and these are greats and, uh, of, of the faith that I really aspire to be. And I'm up there, and I remember, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, why are they letting me do this? And I remember thinking, I'm telling some stupid story that uh, basically wasn't making much sense, and the story didn't really connect to much, but like the, the young people thought it was good. But I remember as I'm telling the story, I look out, and I locked eyes with Robert and I had this feeling, and by the way, if you don't know who Robert is, he founded our church. He's kind of like the Yoda around here. And I locked eyes with Robert. And internally, I had this thought, I should not be here. This is a huge mistake. And, and Robert had this face. He had this face of like, like, why are they letting this? The story was pretty stupid. It was pretty dumb after all. And I remember thinking, what are they doing letting me up here? Because these are the people that I really admire and aspired to be. As we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses, uh, verse one, it begins with a therefore. Therefore, 
And he says this, the author of the Hebrews, this letter says this, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, run the race that's been marked out for you. Here's what I want you to do. If you write in your Bibles, then do this. Uh, First, I want you to look up at chapter 11. If you missed last week, then scroll up or hit the left arrow or just turn the page, look at chapter 11. Chapter 11 is filled with characters. It's filled with stories of people in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, who trusted in the God of Israel, even through really difficult, painful things, waiting on God to deliver on his promise. And the author of the Hebrew says, that cloud of witnesses, these greats that you aspire to be, they're watching. They're, they're witnesses to God's goodness. They're in the audience and they're cheering you on. By the way, the cloud of witnesses is not your neighbors, okay? It's not your coworkers. It's true that you should follow Jesus there as well, but the cloud of witnesses are all those people in chapter 11. He wants you to imagine you're in the Olympic Games. This was true back in ancient Roman Greece, the Olympic Games. And look up at the spectators. We're not gonna have any spectators in a couple of weeks, which is disappointing. They just move them away from Japan and do them in America where we're gonna have spectators, but we gotta have people in the crowd. He wants you to imagine you're in the starting blocks and you look up, and there's Abraham, and Moses, and Sarah, and Rebecca, and David, and they're saying, God's good. He's faithful. Trust him. Keep going. That's how he begins these two verses. And then he says something a little bit shocking. It's, it's a pretty stark idea. He says this, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us, it has the force of a command, let us run with perseverance the race, the one that is marked out for us. Now, the word being translated for us here, race, it's the Greek word agon. Now, what English word is derived from this word agon? What is it? Say it again, but loud. What? Agony. The author's saying, you are in an agonizing struggle, this thing called life. It's gonna require stamina. It's gonna require toughness. There's gonna be pain involved. A few verses later, he's gonna say, you haven't resisted to the point of bloodshed. You haven't shed your blood. Here's why this is significant. We have to have the right expectations for what this life is. See, the Bible does not give us this cute, trite, saccharine, sweet picture of life. And I think a lot of us appropriate that picture of life, that if we, if we are good people, if we do kind of, if we're trying to be nice people and we work hard, then things will work out for me and I'll get good things on the backside of that. If I, if I be a nice person and work hard, then I'm deserving of good things. We have this saccharine sweet view of life that, man, things are gonna all work out in the end and uh, whether I go to church or mosque or synagogue or whatever it may be, as long as I try to be good, then things will work out. It's the American way of thinking. And the Bible's gonna give us a much more well-rounded picture of life. In fact, it's gonna, I think the author wants this, his audience to understand. If you don't have this right expectation of agon, then you'll never be ready when the difficulty surfaces. You'll be ripped apart the moment the pain comes. If you are expecting a sprint, but you've entered a marathon, 
you'll never make it to the finish line. You have to be prepared with the right expectations. This isn't saccharine sweet. This isn't, I'll be, good to, I'll be nice and go to church and then I'll get good things. No matter what the prosperity teachers may wanna say in our country, it's not the picture that the author of the Hebrews is giving us. If you don't have that expectation, you'll never be ready. I think the second thing that, that pain does, that suffering does, I think the second thing it does is it highlights what we're truly prizing in life. When we go through pain, it surfaces what we're finding our meaning and purpose and value in. George McDonald is a theologian and pastor from 100 or so years ago, and he says it this way. I think he's right on the money. He says, everything difficult, painful, agon, points to something more than our theory of life embraces. Let me translate that. What I think what he's getting at is this. Pain will surface what you, the way that you view life. Like if you have that saccharine sweet view of life, that if you're good, good things will happen to you. If you're good and be good, then God owes you in the end. Then when you experience difficulty, you'll be a wreck. It also evidences what truly is your value. Like if for you, you are like most Americans, the way we're trained is let me maximize pleasure and comfort and happiness now. That's the American dream, right? Maximizing pleasure and comfort and happiness now and I'll put back enough so I can maximize pleasure and comfort and happiness later, then if that's your mentality, that it will work out, then pleasure and comfort, when those things face difficulty or when they get grated against, you'll be a wreck inside. It'll tear you apart. If you maximize, if, if you say, I, I wanna maximize my financial stability and I wanna maximize my 401k and I wanna get as much, out of, as much money as I possibly can so I can have enough stuff to give me the comfort and ease I need, then what'll happen is the second those things get challenged or begin to break on you, you'll be a wreck inside. If you are living for your kid's success, your kid's sports success, or your kid's academic success, or just their overall, just that they don't ever experience any pain in this world, then the second they don't live up to the expectations, they don't make the team, or they disappoint you, they embarrass you publicly, then you'll be a wreck inside, because it's cutting to your theory of life itself. And what the author of the Hebrews is giving us is a wide enough and expansive enough theory of life. The Bible's not afraid to say this thing called life, it's an agonizing struggle so be ready for it. It's the race marked out for us. But it's not gonna leave us there. It's gonna say there's a, there's a way forward in this race that is hopeful. There's a way forward. There's an anchor that's deep enough and strong enough to support us even in this race. We have to have the right expectations. Cheery first point, isn't it? We're all happy now, aren't we? Thanks, Hebrews author. Life's an agonizing struggle. Get running. All right, how do we do it? I love the simplicity of this passage because it really uh, kind of explains uh, the idea for us. Right expectations, then we have to have right preparation. Uh, I want a little interaction here. Um, I'm being, I'll be overly uh, simplified here and overly generalized, but as I kind of look at my friendships and Sarah and I, I generally see two different types of people when you go on a trip or a vacation or something like that. Whenever you're going somewhere, there's gonna be two types of people. There is the overpacker, and then there's the underpacker. Let me, let me explain what that looks like. The underpacker, 
They almost always will throw things together the night before, and almost certainly they forget something. They weren't appropriately prepared. You're going to the beach, they get down, they go, dadgummit, I didn't bring my swimsuit. I don't have my sunglasses. My favorite is you get to the airport, you're going out of the country, and they go, my passport. You didn't think you bring your passport? How could you be that underprepared? I don't have my passport. I can't go. Ever happened to anybody in the room? You're the underpacker, by the way, if it has. Then there's the opposite. There's the overpacker. You're the person that takes an extra bag. Well, I don't know what the dress requirement's gonna be in the restaurants, and uh, what if it rains? What if it's a little cooler than we think? And you bring a whole extra bag and check it and pay the $40, and you're lugging this thing around just in case. I mean, sunscreen may be too expensive there. Let's take 50 bottles. Now, I want a little interaction here. Raise your hand. I know it's over. Don't be poking anybody next to you, by the way. How many of you are the overpacker? Raise it high. All right, what about the underpacker so I can see the hands? All right, here's the deal. The nine o'clock was, was way heavy in the overpacker camp. This is a little bit more spread out. I like that. Can I just say to you uh, who are the overpackers in the room? Thank you. Uh, you take care of us. Uh, my wife, uh, my, uh, before I go anywhere, I'm packing like 10 o'clock the night before. I'm just kind of throwing stuff in. It'll work out. It'll be fine. And Sarah's like three days before. She got the list. Everything's folded. It's in the, the suitcase just lays on the floor for a week before we go as stuff kind of gets put in it. And I'm always like, I'm going to throw it in there. And inevitably, she takes care of something that I forgot. So thank you for you uh, more prepared people than, than me. You can fail to prepare by taking too much stuff, taking too little stuff, or taking the wrong stuff. And we're gonna get indication of what that preparation looks like right here. Look at the, the middle part of verse one. The author tells us this. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. You're running this, this agon called life. And it's a, it's, it's a participle, so it's a verbal idea. Throwing off two things. You gotta literally take it off and throw it away, two things. First, they said, and you put number one and number two if you write in your Bible. Number one, NIV translates this, everything that hinders. It's literally all the weights, every weight that may weigh you down. If you're running a marathon, the last thing you wanna do is put on a weight vest and carry around 45-pound dumbbells. You're never gonna make it to the end. The author says, take those weights off. What are those for you? These may be things in your life that aren't necessarily sinful, maybe aren't necessarily wrong or evil, but it's like carrying a 45-pound dumbbell as you go run this race called life. Maybe it's uh, uh, friendships that you have, relationships that you have, where every time you're with that group, you just, the way you talk, your, your, your attitude, your mindset, it just completely erodes. It could be your job. Like maybe, maybe you have a job and, and you, you can't find what Steve Graves calls that redemptive edge to, to your job. You can't figure out how I can bring the beauty of Jesus as king and the gospel into, into my life and my job. Maybe, maybe it's time to go, I, I need to rethink this. It could be a hobby that you enjoy, but it's just a distraction for you. And every time you go there, just, that, that hobby just sort of takes over time. It takes over your attention. I mean, maybe for, for some of us, it's being informed, but it's our media consumption. We are saturated with Fox News, we're saturated with CNN, and it's on all day, and we, we're so consumed with, with outlandish headlines and outlandish opinions, and for us it creates a, uh, an anxiety, or maybe it creates in you an anger or a vitriol that maybe wasn't there two years ago or five years ago. 
It could be your social media time. It's not, it's not evil, but it just it causes all this comparison for you, distraction. I've already said one. Let me suggest one. And I don't mean to make anybody upset here, but the American dream, the American dream, this idea that I'm an individual and I'm autonomous and I can decide for myself my fate and I, I can captain my own life and I can make something of myself. You get out of my way, I can do it. Don't stand in my way. I will determine what's happiness for me. I'll determine what's meaningful for me. I'll do it. A lot of that American dream and a lot of it is rooted in how can I attain is antithetical to the notion of bending your knee to Jesus as king. It's not, it's not evil, it's not necessarily sinful, but it's this distraction for you, this chase. That's the first one, is you gotta throw those off. The second one, what, what, what's, what is, what's the first one for you? And what's the second one? He says, the sin, and it's such a great description. Uh, it's, it's literally perfectly translated here. The easily entangling sin. If you're running that race, and it's, that, it's the limbs and potholes that just want to reach up and grab your feet and cause you to fall. What are those for you? Earlier, when we had our time of confession, what, what came to mind for you? What came to mind for you? Maybe it's, it's that sexual sin, that lust, that's just pervasive in your life or it's consistent in your life, or this biting tongue, this anger that you have towards uh, maybe it's your spouse or your kids or your boss to another group of people, another political group or another racial group. Maybe for you, what started pre-COVID was like, you know, I drink a couple nights a week, but now I'm starting to, I need to have a little buzz to get through the night. What, were you, what came to mind for you? By the way, if you, if you are not a Jesus follower in the room, this whole confession thing, we're talking about sin, can I just, can I just help you understand what that looks like for us. Sin is not, God has a whole bunch of rules for us that are really kind of a buzzkill and a wet blanket for life, and he wants to accept that wet blanket, and then we get to go to heaven. That's not what this concept of sin and confession is. What, what we believe, what we affirm, although a lot of Christians think that, what we're affirming is that God has designed this universe for his glory, and he's invited us to experience the abiding presence of his goodness and to trust him and obey him. And if we do, we get life to the full. He's designed that, our life to work in a certain way as the designer. And instead of trusting that, humans tend to go, no, 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 I will determine what's right for me. I will make meaning and joy for myself. I can do it. I'll figure it out. I don't need anything else. Get out of my way. And when we do that, it brings comparison and anxiety and backstabbing and lying and hurt and sexual brokenness and addictions into this world, and it begins to hurt things in both, both an individual and relational and societal way. Sin. What does that look like for you? I know mine. And the author's saying, you've got to throw it away. You've got to toss it away. I get it. I hear all the time, I don't, I don't, let's get down to press tax, and I don't wanna have this uh, pornography struggle. It's been with me for a while. Well, can I ask, are you, do you recognize you're in a race? Are you running to throw that aside? Do you have any accountability? Have you put any guardrails on your phone, on your computer? Are you honest with people? Are you in a small group? Do you, have you gone to celebrate recovery? Have you worked 
Or are you just sitting on the track going, man, I wish I could get done with this, but I guess I can't. I don't know why there's no momentum spiritually in my life. You've got to throw it aside. Now, as a, as a timeout, I get it. There's a lot of us in the room that, uh, man, some of these things have lingered for years. Some of these things feel like addiction. Some of these things, we feel like we need help. Then go get the help. We've got a care and counseling team that would love to meet with you. We've got Celebrate Recovery here. I've been through two step studies. And look at me. Still this messed up. Two of them. But go recognize you're in a race. God does not after you sitting in life waiting for the next vacation, waiting for the next weekend, waiting for the next golf outing. That's not, that's not what this design is. He's created you for glory. So experience his blessing and bring that out into the world. You're in a race. And yes, yeah, it has some pain along the way. And the way you run it, he says, is you gotta throw those things off. Right expectations, right preparation, and lastly, right prize, right prize. How do we do this? Like, how do we make it 20 years, 50 years? Some of you were like, I'll just take 20 days. How do we do this? Uh, some of the older staff used to say when I, when I started on staff, I'm, I'm in my mid-30s now, uh, they used to say, man, there's a lot of people that are following Jesus in their 20s, in college, and fewer in their 30s, and seemingly fewer in, four, in their 40s, and fewer in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Why? Because the agon, man, those hindrances, they trip you up, and that sin that easily entangles, it wraps its nasty arms around your feet and drags you down. And just the weights of life and the pressures of life and the pain of life, we have to be ready for 20 days or 20 years, what's the prize? I love this passage because it leaves no stone unturned. Look at the prize. Verse two, yes, there's a cloud of witnesses, and yes, we gotta throw the hindrances and the sin aside, but how? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Circle it, box it, star it, highlight it. Fixing our eyes. Eyes. This is the manner in which we run the race. The prize in mind. Everything, everything that follows the word Jesus here is a relative clause. Uh, these are all gonna be describing who Jesus is. If just saying Jesus isn't enough for you, he unpacks it for us. Let's look at each one of these. He says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Well, who's he? He's the archegos, the pioneer. Remember the, uh, in, back in chapter two, same word. When two armies are facing down against each other, they'll elect a champion to fight the battle on behalf of the army. They go before the other group and represent them. Pioneers are good translation. They go before into the, the chaos, the archegos, who stares down the enemy of sin and death. But it's not just, he's not just the champion. He's the perfecter of faith. This is the same word that Jesus, when he's on the cross, says, it is finished. He's the one who completes it, who finishes it. Here's the idea. He stares down the enemy called sin and death, and it was a decisive battle. That's awesome. This battle of sin, its result of death, conclusively defeated. How? Look at the next clause. For 
the joy set before him. I don't like the translation. Here's why. Uh, the, the preposition here that's being translated as for, it's the, the Greek preposition anti. So if I say the anti-type or the anti-Christ, what I have in mind there is the opposite of, right, or against. I think the idea here is Jesus is, he experiences the fullness of the joy and the glory of heaven. He's got the fullness of being in the triune Godhead. He's got the fullness of the joy of heaven. And against that, the joy set before him, against that, what did he do? He endured the cross. Here's the idea. He's got the box seat at the stadium as everybody runs down there. He's got the glory. But instead of sitting in the box seat enjoying, he enters into the agon. He comes into the agonizing struggle for us. Is that not amazing theology? He came into it for you and for me. But he didn't just enter the race. He ran the race for you. He enables that, the full weight of that agonizing struggle, of the agone of this world, to get centered and squared on him. But there, he scorned its shame. And that's not where our story ends. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The empty tomb is the declaration that Jesus really is Israel's Messiah and the world's true king. Guess who sits on the throne, on God's throne, ruler of all the nations in the land? Caesar. This is written to Rome, church in Rome. Here's the, here's the thought. Caesar ain't your king. He's not powerful enough. Jesus is. In his victory over sin and death, in his resurrection to the throne of God means that he is the king. He is in control. He is the one who is is over everything in this world. And we can now look at pain and sin and death even and say, bring it on. Bring it on. Because my king's already won. This is unbelievable theology. It's in a little relative clause. We have to have right expectations. We have to have the right preparation and the right prize. The way that we run this race is by fixing eyes on Jesus. In the morning, throughout your day, at night, is this the posture of your heart and your mind? Wholly focused, singularly focused, this is my aim, this is my prize. If not, then your theory of life will not be big enough and expansive enough. And when the pain comes, you'll be a wreck. How do we run 20 days, 20 years, 50 years by fixing your eyes on him. Here's how we close. This is Hattie. Uh, she's my seven-year-old, and uh, she, uh, all of our kids have the same experience, but she's, the, she's probably the worst at it. When we go to the doctor or the dentist, uh, all of my kids, especially Hattie, in the car ride, they ask this question. Are we gonna get a shot? That's all they wanna know. Are we getting a shot? Then when we get there, they're really worried about the shot. And, some, and basically what I say is, maybe, because sometimes you get a shot, right? So when we go to get our flu vaccine or something, they're really worried, panicked. It's a little, little shot. Uh, is there gonna be a shot? Yes. And now what's the, what's, what's the reaction from Hattie? I don't want the, I can't handle it. Then the doctor comes in, right? The nurse comes in. 
the needle that looks like a dagger to a seven-year-old. And they've got the Band-Aid with the little flap already pulled back. You know, they're ready and waiting. And they've got the little cotton ball. And she's, she's sitting there, and just the panic begins to well up. And if you're a parent, you know exactly what you do. What do you do? You go, hey, Hattie, Hattie, look at me. Look, look at me. Just look at Daddy. Look at Daddy. Look, I got my shot. It's not that bad. This is, this is good for you. This is good. Daddy would not bring you here just to torture you. All right? I love you. This is for your good so you won't get sick. Look at Daddy. Don't look at the needle. Don't look at the needle. Don't, don't look at the Band-Aid. Don't look, don't look at the nurse. Look at me. Weird posters, me. Just look at me. Look, look at my eyes. I love you. I'm here with you. I love you. I have your best in mind. Don't you worry. And then we're going to get ice cream. I love you. Now, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and they're cheering you on. But don't look at them. And there's weights, and there's obstacles. You gotta avoid them. And there's sin that wants to entangle you. Cut it down. And there's cultural pressure that wants to weigh in on you from our culture. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus because he's beaten sin and death. Our confidence, our strength is in him. It's the only theory of life that's gonna be big enough, beautiful enough to carry you through this race of life. We're gonna, we're gonna glory in that. We're gonna sing confidently in our Savior and our King. Celebrate him right now through song. Let me pray, then we're gonna, we're gonna sing together. Lord Jesus, you're the King who left the the king's seat in the arena and got into the race. And you ran the race for us, scorning the shame of the cross. And now you've taken your seat at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling and reigning as the victorious king. What could the world throw at us? Would that be our prize? We look to you, Jesus, today, right now, we sing to your glory because you're worth it. We love you, Jesus. Pray this in your name as our King. Amen. Would y'all stand? Let's declare these words together.